Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. This is episode 108 and I'm Sean and here's Ronan. Hello everybody, you're very welcome back into the Game Pit and this time around we're taking you over a picking over the bones format in which we are going to review six games we've been playing recently and as well as the familiar with picking over the bones and our reviews and our thoughts on the games, we're going to try a couple of new things as well Sean, we had an idea. We did have an idea Ronan. So the first of those ideas, Ronan, is we are going to give you an idea of how we really felt about the games. So what we're going to do is we're going to go rank them, Ronan, aren't we? We're going to go just our least favourite to our most favourite through the six games. I'm going to run a little book on how many times we say, it's still a good game, it's just maybe not as good as the others. I think with today's episodes, we are very likely to say that, Ronan. <laughs> do you like them? Is this, this a strong lineup for you? I think it is quite a strong lineup. yes. I think they split in half. There's three that I thought were good, and there's three that I thought were still decent games, but there was, there was it was an easy, these were four to six, these were one to three, and then working them out in there was a bit more difficult. Although I think I have got a clear favourite. Anyway, the second thing we're going to do is, in the middle of the episode we've got a little giveaway we have got uh, a few games coming from different places that we're going to use as prizes in the next few episodes and the first one was from paul at boardgameguru.co.uk we've got a sealed edition of brazilian coup so that's coup the bluffing uh, social deduction game and the if you've ever seen the brazilian art if you haven't go to board game geek it's very different it's in the style of the bloody inn and it is definitely in my book the most attractive of them it's just a little game we're going to do a giveaway for and to find out how to enter we're going to let you know right in the middle of the episode after three of our reviews just to keep you listening we've got to do something sean hook them in absolutely Ronan. it's it's cheap it's cheap pt barn stunts but i'm all right that's what i'm all about okay ronan what three games are you bringing to the fold today mine are civilization a new dawn followed by a little bit of tulip bubble and ending with some reworld what have you got for us Sean? i have got empires of the void 2 and i'm moving to a column of fire and then i'm gonna finish up with a little tickle of fallout ronan <laughs> a little tickle that is that is three Big reputations for you. That is a Laocat game, a sequel to Pillars of the Earth, and then an FFG Fallout on the IP I know that Natalie's a big fan of. So these three had had reputations to live up to. They really did, and shall we see if they did live up to them? I can't, I can't wait, I'm so excited. <laughs> Go ahead, John. As always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download our episodes, we're on Podbean, Stitcher and iTunes and we do have our YouTube channel where we have our pit stop videos for very short overviews on games. first game we're going to kick off with is civilization a new dawn this is a two to four player game builds take around 120 minutes from fantasy flight games designed by james niffen who's one of the newer names in the fantasy flight stable uh, known for helping out with forbidden stars star wars armada new angeles and now this one Civilization A New Dawn is licensed on the Sid Meier Civilization computer games, a very long-running series, very popular onto their sixth version now. Civ A New Dawn is played on a modular map, which is made up of larger hexes, all made up of seven hexagons. And they represent various types of terrains in five different things with five different 
difficulties and that number five is going to come up again and again and again and each player is going to take on the role of a particular civilization a, a real world one although the map is not related to uh, to earth in any way and the map itself is modular because it's made up of all different pieces you can move around each civilization is going to try and achieve three goals and those goals are drawn from a deck of just five cards and there are two goals in each of the cards and all the players are going to tr try to be the first person to achieve three of them on their turn they're going to do that by taking actions which are dictated by five cards in front of them these are called focus cards and they're in their action row and you choose a card and its position from one to five dictates how strong that that card is going to be if the card interacts with terrain for example i said there's five different types of terrain if you want to interact with mountains which are the most difficult the card would have to be in the rightmost slot if it was in the leftmost slot you'd only be able to interact with grassland which is the level one terrain and that number one to five when the card is always affects what you can do when you use the card it gets taken out of the row all the cards slide to the right to fill the gap and it gets put down the left hand one you have to wait for it to build up its power again if you wish to use it at its maximal power but what sort of thing are you trying to do well everyone starts with one city on the board and they can attempt to control areas around that city by putting something called control markers down and one of your cards allows you to put control markers down control markers are either normal or they're fortified there's another card that will let you fortify your control markers and that's going to give you some protection when you're attacked either by other players or by barbarians which roam around the place now speaking of which you can can attack each other you can attack barbarians which roam around which will get you some trade tokens and get you some bonuses and there are also city states on the map and you can either interact with them diplomatically by sending out trade envoys to them which will give you a little bonus in the form of a power you can also send trade envoys to your uh, other players and you get diplomatic powers from that or you can fight these city states and take them over and build another city for yourself there so obviously you start with one city you've also got the ability to build more cities around the board and spread your control markers around and only one player can control any hex at any time and when you put these control markers down they might be on areas that produce resources for you for example or they might be on natural wonders and with resources you're going to take them in and keep hold of them because the only thing that they're useful for is to help you build world wonders there are always a set of world wonders available they come in four different types and quite often the goals you're looking for are going to be related to either having a lot of cities having developed your cities and fully putting control markers around them or having built world wonders within those cities and the world wonders themselves they come in different eras from ancient to medieval to modern and they're going to give you a special power and they're going to help you focus exactly what you want to do and how you want to play it because your civilization power the wonders that you build and also how you advance your own personal technology is very much going to affect how you're going to go after whichever goals are available in this game now i was talking about your technology each player's got a technology dial and as you move that around by taking the fifth action i haven't exactly made clear which of the four are in there but trust me those are the four actions i've discussed so far the fifth one is to advance your technology marker and as that goes around the dial these five cards that you begin with there are three upgrades available for them up to the highest tech level of four and you can choose to upgrade them and again in that way you're very much going to be picking a certain path down yourself to reach the wing conditions that have been set for you to build the wonders build the cities control areas of the map whatever it may be and they are varied so sean civilization and new dawn to you does it feel like a civ game because this is a weighty ip it's a computer series that people like myself have been playing for over 20 years uh, it, there's been various attempts at capturing this in board games before both licensed to civ and not licensed did it feel like a civ game I think it did, Ronan. I think it did. I think it's it's kind of gone about it a slightly different way, and we'll talk about the mechanisms in the game in in a little while. But I think it did. I mean, you are building up your civilizations. I didn't really feel like I was. 
a particular civilization. I know they have individual powers, but I didn't really think I was the French or the Russians or whoever, whatever the factions are in there. I just kind of felt like I was a civilization. I was trying to build up. I was trying to cross the map. I was trying to explore a bit, but they weren't unique, Ronan. It's definitely abstracted out the idea. I think that's been said again and again since it came out that they haven't tried to capture everything in the game. It's not a port. It's not a simulation of a simulation, if you like. It's an abstraction of the computer game. And that what they've done is taken some of the ideas which run throughout it and tried to put them into something which runs in a reasonable playtime. It's not mega civilization going on for 16 hours. They've tried to get it down to that 120 minutes. And they've very much focused it on a race. Now, the Civ game is a race. You are racing. There are varied end goals you're going towards. But it never really feels like you're rushed because it is a very long game to play through a whole one, like 20 hours or what have you, to play through a whole sort of session of it. Uh, but that race element is focused on a lot more. There are areas on the map, Ronan, that I think that for starting players aren't on the greatest. But I think once you've played it a few times, you start to f- figure out there are different ways of doing things. So that race does expand out a little bit more than maybe the original Civ did when you I thought you kind of channeled into one or two different things. Yeah, I think it's one of those situations when you first start playing, it's natural that as you're learning the game, you're going to generalize and it's very hard to appreciate how different areas of the map and what the shape of the map around you affects what you should be doing. And also how the shape of the map around you works together with your own powers, with the powers of the wonders you're looking to build, with how you go towards the end conditions and what other people are doing. And this, when you're playing, you, you feel competent. You don't feel like you're struggling. You don't feel like you're doing poorly. And then suddenly another player's won and you kind of go, wow, I was a long way away from winning that. What happened? And there's quite a bit of a learning curve and not, it's kind of hard to say that it's steep because it doesn't feel frustrating. It doesn't feel like I'm not doing anything. You always feel like you're getting somewhere. You always feel like you're moving along, but less experienced players will nine times out of 10 be beaten by more experienced players who have learned how to manipulate what's going on on the board and how all those things quite subtly go together because it is kind of more of a subtle game. There's not huge butting heads. There's not building up massive armies. All the combat is very abstracted and yet can be very powerful. Like One of the examples is the American power is really obvious to use. It's when you take a natural wonder, when you get it, it powers up all the actions you take. You just have to plan a little bit further in advance. It acts as an extra trade token. I didn't talk about trade tokens, but when you defeat barbarians or when you trade with cities, you can take tokens to power up your cards and sort of to power up to more powerful moves to, to make them more, you know, get out more control tokens or increase your attack power, whatever it may be you're doing. I help you build wonders. The Americans get that constantly and you think that is obviously good. But then after a few games, maybe side years in the game, and they're really effective at attacking onto grasslands. And then being near Scythia means you have to be more careful where you build every city. Because you build it on grasslands or hills, they've got a big advantage to nick it from you. And, and those sort of things take a while to come out. And just generalising is not going to be as effective as specialising in this game. Yeah, I think when we played recently, Ronan, I was kind of feeling a little bit hard done by because... You were right next to a couple of cities that you could initiate trade with. I was I was being sort of hounded by barbarians on on, and I was really near to any cities. But it was only at the end of the game we had like the little discussion. You said, "Well, yeah, it's really easy just to advance your cities and really spread out across the map from where you were. You were quite defended for your home city, and attacking barbarians has its own rewards. So building that direction, so yeah." 
there are definite different paths to go, and it's making the best of your lot in this game rather than thinking, right, I'm going to expand over there, I'm going to expand over there, let's see what I start with and then move from there. I'll say also in that, in that theme of moving on and, and learning it better, it kind of looks like when you look in the rule book that the advanced version to move on to is to start building the maps yourself and you draw tiles and then you put them down and there are sort of rules to keep you fairly close to each other. And then actually mentioned later in almost the throwaways that another advanced version is to play for four end game goals. Now, I think they should definitely be swapped around because when you're playing for three end game goals, they're quite easy to get comparatively. And a player can really rush it and not have that many cities, sometimes only four cities, and you can get the in-game goals. And it can leave players, oh, I wish there was more. The next step for me is to move into four goals out of the cards there and, and drawing an extra card. And that gives a bit more meat to the game. It means that your decisions need to be slightly longer term. and doesn't add that long to it, but means that you can't just sort of do a real rush strategy. And that map building, Sean, that you're talking about, I think it's a notorious area when you play three player, even four player. There's, there's one that's sort of stuck behind a mountain range and they're by themselves and they're easier to, to have control markers around because there's fewer control markers needed. But it's odd to play that place over there when you first start. When you're building the map, that is only increased tenfold. And that is the real expert variant for me because it's easy to underestimate how important the terrain is around you. Right, Ronan. So we've talked in quite broad strokes about this game. So let's let's dig into what the mechanism really attracted me to the game, and it's that card economy system. I really like the way they, how clever it was and, and simple. Yes, and and what I also really like about it is that you'd think you'd sit there with a program like this where you program in and go, I'm activating this on four, this on five, this on three, this on four. And and you're right. Where where they are all makes sense and you just explain it to someone once and they absolutely get how all the cards work. And then each upgrade of card is subtly more powerful. And so when you look at it, once you understand the first five, you understand the other 15 cards in the game. And it definitely makes it not a hard game to teach. But... There's enough going on that a player can't program 5, 10, 15 moves ahead and you're just sitting there running a script because there's more going on than that and it's slightly more interactive. Yeah, because you have to be quite reactive, Ronan, because, yeah, it's, it's nice to maybe plan a few moves ahead, but it's what you need at that time whether somebody's attacking you you might need to defend yourself whether the barbarians are closing in maybe someone's getting close to a goal and yeah you have to be quite flexible so maybe it's small increments or save up for that one big hit but you could as you said yeah you absolutely can't go too far ahead now the tech cards were i thought they were they were a nice touch they could give that sieve flavor to the game but i would have liked to have seen maybe a few more there's a question there, Sean, and it's definitely one that's being asked with regards to Civ, is all about variety. Whether individual civilizations could have had individual upgrades to cards. So, uh, because that would be slightly more like what the computer game is, whereby the science card, let's say for the Greeks, which aren't in the game, but anyway, the Greeks, it has got a slight tweak to it, and it's slightly more powerful. To me, I think... I feel like the design decision has been made that there's not massive amounts of variety like this. We're not going for that feel where every game is different and you're just trying to work out your technology. They're going for the depth of, no, this is the system, but the number of different 
possibilities out of this system is what we want you to explore and you have to play differently depending upon what wonders you grab and who else is in the game and where you are and it's focused my plays more into learning the depth of what's here unlike a couple of other games actually we're going to talk about today I am not that fussed at the lack of this variety and lots of different things and lots of options and expansions yet I think there's a lot here to dig into it will be expanded. It's it's a fantasy flight game. It absolutely will be expanded. That will be coming down the road. Yeah, and I I think in the long term I would like to see more of those cards and that variety just eke out a little bit if I really got into the game and played it enough times. It's a question I think that, that might again might come up again and again is that this game is available for under forty pounds in the UK, and I'm not sure that we are comparing it because it's a fantasy flight game to other games in that price range and in fact £40 are kind of pretty standard if not cheap for a board game nowadays and if you had that amount of variety in a, a euro let's say a Pegasus Spiel release or an HP release whatever you'd be quite happy with that but because it's Fantasy Flight because it's Civ I feel like we're kind of comparing it to the Kickstarter effect almost of a $100 game or a £100 game which comes with bells and whistles and add-ons and this and that and 30 different varieties and minis and the Gods expansion and the Monsters expansion and the Spaceship expansion. And I'm not sure we're comparing it fairly and like for like. And I think this is part of the Kickstarter phenomenon that people expect huge games and they've shown on Kickstarter that they're willing to pay for it. But when I stop and go, hold on, this is a 40 quid game. I'm not sure it's a fair to expect much more in that box. What I'm getting at here, Ronan, is it's more of a, a kind of a kid in the sweet shop effect for me. I really like the mechanism with the cards and planning your strategy through those sort of five cards. And I like upgrading the cards and I, I really enjoy that part of the game. So I want more. I think it is a case of, yeah, it is enough for me. It is absolutely to play the game, but I'm greedy. I'm I'm, I'm grabbing that. I'm grabbing out those bonbons and the sherbet dabs and whatever you. I, I want I want the lot. I'm just scooping it. Never in. a truer word said on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Ronan, we'll put you on the spot a little bit here. How in your mind does this compare? to other civilization games now i'm talking about the first fantasy fight civ which i know we've both played i know clash of cultures is something we've both played together and nations okay so i definitely much prefer it to the first fantasy flight civ which i thought was an interesting two-player game it really didn't have enough components for four players things ran out and it became boring and it got really bogged down but there were things like discovering uranium and things which put a lot of swing into it, which didn't go to my style, where I like a sort of more planning. I like interaction. I don't like a random chit draw determining a game. So I definitely prefer it to the 2010 or whatever it was Civ release. Clash of Cultures is almost more a standard Civ game for me, where you build up your city, you build up your armies and you attack. And it feels on the surface more like if it's Civ, yeah, Sid Meier's Civ game, but it doesn't have the subtlety of this one. And I think I probably at the moment like them both quite equally. And Nations is so abstracted that I almost wouldn't compare it to those two. And I know we do, and I think we've probably done a Civ bit fight with regards to them. But I think it's almost a completely different category of game for me. Uh, it's, it's a worker placement 
tableau building game which is very euro and has a sieve veneer whereas these two are trying to do something a bit different so i, I kind of you know you ask me my opinion i've almost given my final opinion it's up there with clash of cultures for me well that's a big statement because i know you're a big fan of clash i am a big fan of clash of cultures your thoughts I think you kind of stole my thunder on the Nations thing. Cause I see Nations more as a Euro game than it, than necessarily a Civ game. I think it is quite abstracted. You're absolutely right. And 100% with you on it being a better game and an improvement on the first Fantasy Flight Civ because I thought that one was good for two or three games, but it really didn't have any longevity to it at all. And this one, the subtleties that are there and the... The different tactics you have to employ at different times and, of course, that card mechanism, I think that's going to give this one a lot more legs than that game. But, yeah, so shall we sum up, Ronan? For me, I really do enjoy the look of the game. It looks like a fantasy flight game, but I'm always a big fan of their artwork. They always do things to a certain standard, and this one is is on point with that. I kind of gave it away in in my comparison. I do much prefer it to the first Civ. I think it is a really interesting game. I love some of the mechanisms in there. I do want to see more. I think I will bring this one potentially into my collection, get some of those expansions in Ronan, and I think this one will have legs for a good few years to come. I think it's a game that needs getting used to, Civilization and New Dawn. You kind of feel like you're standing on a rope bridge and a breeze to start with, because it is different. And it's not exactly Euro, it's not exactly thematic, it's almost an abstract take with elements of both of those to it. I think it develops with every game, as you learn the, the wonders and the combos and the Civ powers and all the rest of it. And I think it really needs those four goals once everyone's comfortable with the system, to fully develop and feel like a real full Civ game. In fact, you can play with three goals and be shorter. That's great for the full effect. Go play with four. I think it's great value for money. I do want expansion, Sean, but I'm really happy with what I have. I've stuck it in my 10 by 10 for the year, and I'm glad I've done that. And I am. this is the one game I think I will for sure play more than 10 times this year. So Civilization and New Dawn is a hit for me. You're going to take us on to another game with kind of a civilization theme you are running your own civilization but very much a different time era and a different situation yes we're going up up to space and to visit new planets in empires of the void 2 this one coming from ryan laukat and red raven games playing two to five players the basic backstory here is that your world has been destroyed and you've gathered what people you could in a ship called the world ship and this is going to be taken off to the fringe of the galaxy where you're going to look to re-establish yourself and your race by exploring, waging war, using diplomacy. You're going to be constructing things and the game is going to begin as your world ship arrives at that fringe of the galaxy. So Empires of the Void 2 is a sprawling space game and it's driven by two key mechanisms. These mechanisms are command points, which are your action points, and you have some multifunctional cards. And what you have laid out in front of you is a board which has multiple randomly laid out planets, and they change for each game. And on the planets are different races, and there are pathways between those planets. Now, command points, as I mentioned, these are the action points that you're going to spend to do each of the various actions. I'm going to quickly run through the actions that are available. You've got move and attack, where your ships are going to carry some troops around the map, and you're going to use those command points to move the ships. 
So there are two routes to go with the planets, and one of them is attack and control that, or you can ally through diplomatic actions. When you do have a battle, and that's with the planets or your other players, is going to add three values. You have the dice power, you have a base power, and you play the cards, and that's one of the actions for the cards. You can research and build. Now, research is going to add tech upgrades for powers, or for end-of-game scoring, or to, or they can actually make the cost of building a lot cheaper. And you're going to build to get more money, command points, and increase your hand limit, and, and they're going to add points at the end of the game as well. The only caveat there, to build, you need to have planets on the board, so you need to be conquering planets, whether it be large or small planets. Next action you can do is a card action or, or diplomacy. So I mentioned the cards were multifunctional. You can do missions, actions, deliveries, and these are all the things that you can do with those cards. Uh, diplomacy, you're going to try and add influence to a planet in order to ally with them. If you do ally with a planet, you're going to have access to an ongoing power. You're also going to be able to buy troops from that planet and add them to your units that you're carrying around. You can recruit... So I mentioned that you have these allied planets with, with uh, units on there. This is how you're going to bring them onto your ships. And they're going to, obviously, certain planets are going to have better fighters or other, other ways of doing things to, to help you along your way. The last thing you can do is scavenge. And this is one of the ways that you can refresh. And that means get command points back, get your cards back up and get your money. Now, I say one of the ways because all along, every time the leader takes an action, every other player can follow. And when you follow, you have the option to refresh for free. You also have the option to follow for one command point or completely go in a different direction and go to another action for two command points. So it's free to refresh when you're following. So you don't really necessarily want to be using that scavenge action the game carries on and there are two scoring phases in the game one is about halfway through you have to have scored your first scoring and then at the end of the deck when that runs out you have to score your second time and you get points for controlling planets being allied to planets you have your personal scoring objective cards in there as well and you have obviously as i mentioned you have those points on your player board now a lot to take in there Ronan. it's quite a read going through that rule book but i think once you kind of get going it all kind of falls into place or at least it did for me how did you feel there's only those really four individual actions the fifth one being scavenge which is the same as a reset and they're all very simple actions and they all take a small amount of command points so each thing that you're individually doing in the game is in itself quite simple and while there's lots of multiple systems going on and there's ways that you can interact with yourself and sort of the NPC races one of the questions I have back for you Sean was with those very simple actions do you feel there's depth to what you're doing or are you kind of sort of churning through and waiting for that deck to run out and see how it all falls into place I think there is Ronan I think the depth comes from obviously the trying to pick and choose what planets you're going to ally with to try and maybe get those units or this or the special unique power the interaction with the other players especially in a in a larger player count game i think with two players maybe not so much but three and four for sure trying to guess where the next player's going to what they're going to try and influence and i think each of those actions in itself has 
a wider sort of thought pattern involved in it, even just building. Do you what what track do you want to take from? You're gonna make it more expensive if you keep building that area without getting your tech in and yeah, I think there was some clever intertwining mechanisms there. I think there's quite a simple sort of economic Euro-y heart to it, which has got all this this layering of flavour around it, which turns it into both the theme and the story. Now, there's a few different things in there that add variety to each game. There's the events. So events get put in the deck and they come out and the, each planet in itself has got five in, different events it can be and only one of them is going to happen in each game. And each of them, to, there's obviously there's loads of variety, and each of them can affect. So a planet might turn into a, a highway with a warp gate that can lead you anywhere, or it might rebel and become harder to conquer, or it might suddenly become a resource and, and useful. There's variety there, Sean, and there's also variety within the races. Was that enough to bring you back again and again? Because you've obviously got the, the variety in the planets themselves as well, Ronan, because they're, they're randomly placed out and there's more than go on the board. So you've not always got the same planets in the same area and you've not always got the same planets on the board at all. So And the different races, yeah, there were some ones that you think, yeah, I'm just going to go there straight for the power. But there were some that help you move, some that help you get tech better. So there was different ways and different paths to explore for sure. And I haven't reached the point where I've gone, you know, I've I've kind of I've had enough of that game. I think it really does have that longevity so far for me. Uh, I think a lot of it is also going to come from the player interaction, and obviously where other players go because it's much simpler to conquer a planet when it's just defended by the NPCs than it is when it's defended by a player generally. Uh, unless when you're playing with very few players and the people can get spread thin, it becomes slightly easier. But but to conquer, first of all, is much easier. One of the things with it is, Sean, that especially with higher player counts, the player interaction is only ever negative. You're never trading. You're never creating opportunities for each other. You're just at loggerheads all the time, which is less subtle than the systems that are going on within the game itself. Because there's nice things where certain planets don't like other planets. So if you're allied to one, you can't be allied to another. Or the fact that the cards you get, the missions you get for certain planets, they all tie into a theme for that particular planet. So there's there's a planet of, of engineers, and if you build near there, it gives you a bonus. Or there's a planet of cyborg mercenaries, and they're going to give you extra boost to military if you're allied with them. There's quite nice subtleties and stories there, but the player interaction is only ever, I hit you, you hit me, I hit you, you hit me. It is, but I kind of think that ties into the storyline. Now, there isn't a big, massive, deep storyline with chapters and chapters of history behind the races, but what is there is that you're trying to get a foothold in this area. There's up to three other races that have been destroyed by this megalomaniac corporation or interplanetary system that are trying to do the same. Only one of you can really establish yourself. So it is a, it is a survival of the fittest. It really is. And I think that kind of lent itself to me. You know what? I don't have to interact with you, but when I am going to interact with you, I'm going to try and nobble you. I'm trying to try and take you down. I quite like that. And I'm not usually the most aggressive person in games. This game kind of just tells you, you know what? You can't be allied to everyone because you're not going to get those control points. So you're going to have to attack some planets and you're going to have to attack some players. So I quite, I, it felt right in this game. There's two things there that I want to pick up on. Do you want to talk about battles first or the narrative? Well, I was going to ask you about battles and the combat system. Well, let's do that first then. Go on then. Different way of doing it. So let me just quickly 
go through it. So what you're going to have is you're going to have units that are going to give you a certain amount of dice to roll, and they're going to give you some a certain amount of base power as well. So when you go into a fight, so so you've got units that give you four dice, you're going to roll those dice, and you're going to take the highest value die, and that's going to add to your power, so you might get a five. And then you count up all the power that the units give you, so they might give you another five. Then you're going to play a card from your hand, and these cards range from power one to four, and that's going to add to your battle, and that's your final battle strength. And obviously the, the other person is going to be doing the same. So battles early on i think there is some mystery there because you're not quite sure who's going to win and you do take a chance i think as the game evolves especially if you've built up loads and loads of uh, recruits and from those other planets it gets to the point where you know if you're going to win that battle or not but i think that's very very much towards the end of the game I think Red Raven should uh, should give you a thanks or praise you somewhere for making the battles sound more interesting than they are there. <laughs> when I listened to you explain them, I was like, oh, that sounds okay. The battles are dull. Very, very dull. And you're going to win against the defending troops. And then when it comes to players, very quickly, you're, you're going to get a six out of there because you have enough dice. And then you add, it's just dull, mate. And for the length of game that it is, and it doesn't go on forever. It does play in two, two and a half hours. But for the length of game, the fact that you have to combat to get hold of these planets, to be able to build, it is important. I just did not enjoy the combat at all. It's it's quite possibly the, the weakest part of the game to me. I thought it was just very smooth and it didn't interrupt the game. And I, I kind of liked it for that because I think a lot of times when you get these sort of quite exciting battles it's like right i get two dice for that two dice for that and oh i get dice here and i get dice here right you're rolling nine dice and you're adding them all up and it's like it takes a big chunk of time i felt that these were just like okay i know what i'm going in with i'm rolling these dice i'm adding one number to that and here's my card boom i think it was really smooth it didn't affect the other gameplay i think smooth is a good term for a lot of the mechanisms empires of the void too and i think in 80% 80% of the cases it's to be applauded because it does give you this sort of epic scope and story and and oh, I'm going to trip this into narrative the, the story that's there and it is I think my favourite way of having narrative in a game it's not themeless but it's also not eight pages of A4 every time you want a story it's not even thrown in your face it emerges as you play that there is a background to this area you've come into. There are political alliances and there are sort of minor wars going on and there's trade that's going on and there's specialities. And you weave yourself into the subtle narrative that's going on and it definitely gives me a sense of place and a sense of time. And that is also smooth as well as a lot of the mechanisms. But the battles to me are smoothed down to a stub of boredom and just move on. <laughs> Stuff of boredom, I like it. <laughs> okay, Ronan, I know you haven't played uh, Empires of the Void 1, the original game, but I just want to, just for people who have played it, because it was very much billed as a completely separate game, and I'm not buying that, Ryan. Sorry, I'm a big fan, but I'm not quite buying it. There's so much similarity there. But what he's done is he's layered on. All the things I think that you like about this game, Ronan, he's layered on because the original one was pretty much a slap fest in space. You did have your, your allies, but you, you also, it was just allying and fighting. That was kind of what it was. 
Now he's he's added this narrative there. He's added the the like the world ships and building up and the storylines were intertwined. I really like that. He's also what he's done is limited the ships that you could have. And that that's that's one of the biggest change for me. So in the original you had could just have loads and loads of ships all over the place. But what he's done this time, you've only got you're only gonna ever have three ships that can carry troops and it's really the units that go on the truth of the ships that make the difference and that kind of limits people having like seven eight ships all over the galaxy and able to just drop in at wherever they want it makes that movement more important and it feels more epic because of it great so it's a definite well, it's good that it's an improvement from number one to number two <laughs> So if you did try to play one and you didn't love it, two is definitely worth a look on that basis. I'm going to sum up for you, Sean, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I've enjoyed playing Empires of the Void 2. One thing that we didn't mention that I like is the fact that the downtime is limited because everyone could do something on everyone else's turn. The fact that there's a real-time pressure to it, that that deck is running through, it's not going to take forever. It's a sci-fi Civ game that gets a decent amount in a decent amount of time. There's a good theme. I don't like the combat. I don't think there's that much replayability because there's not that many options. Every game you're going to go and conquer a few planets, get some allies where you can, do a couple of missions, and the game's going to finish. So perhaps that having to squeeze it into the timeline has given up some of the replayability, but then I might be comparing it to longer games and more space opera epics. But definitely a good, solid game, Empires of the Void 2. Okay, for me, I haven't talked about the looks of the game. It's absolutely beautiful. And Mr. Laoka actually didn't do all the art. There was somebody else that helped him with the art. So there you go. It's, I think it's a sprawling, beautiful game in space. That's The cards in themselves, they provide you with interesting choices throughout, but for differing reasons. I think the narrative in the game is a lot better than the first one i really really enjoyed the interaction with you and the planets and and even with the other players even though it was kind of zero sum it was like i hit you and you hit me as ronan said i think there are lots of fiddly rules when you first start in this game but that really does fade out because everything once you've clarified it, it all makes sense and for me empires of the void 2 was a huge hit ronan you're going to take us a completely different path now aren't you it's off to amsterdam in 1637 sure. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to be experiencing the tulip bubble 2017 game designed by koyu it's their first design from mo ideas games who also brought us flip city mini rails and Draku. so three to five players 60 minutes build i'm going to say a bit longer than that we are going to be buying and selling tulips on the tulip market in amsterdam 1637 during this huge uh, you probably heard of financial bubble each player is going to attempt to either have 120 guilders at the beginning of their turn in order to buy the black tulip and do an outright win or there's going to be a crash after between eight and ten rounds the first little half round counting and have the most money left at the end in order to win so tulips are available for us to buy they appear in a future market so you can see what's getting shipped across but there is a limited number of them available right now so we're going to refill that each turn and we're going to be seeing the cycle of these tulips go round and round and they come in three different colors 
and the prices of these tulips are always set on a very simple grid whereby the orange the red and the white are going to be in a column and then the different varieties the a b and c which is the quality of the tulip if you like are going to have their prices set for selling and mostly for buying but we'll come to that as a bit of auction going on with the a's being more expensive but rarer in the deck of cards so you're going to choose before buying whether you've got any tulips that you have already previously bought and you wish to sell them. And there's two ways to sell. You can just sell them direct to market. Hopefully the price has gone up since you bought them and you're going to get whatever money is there. There's a second way in that there are three collectors available and they want particular sets of tulips. They might want uh, C's three C's of all one colour or the highest value collector wants an A, a B1 and a B2 for their collection because as well as there being those varieties there's also subsets within there where you get C1, C2, C3s and there are small decks of collectors and they want particular numbers and letters to be on the certain colours of cards and you'll get a boost to the guilders that you receive if you sell them. You're doing this in turn order and that can be quite important who can get to a collector first after the sell phase and they all go down and they are also appearing in the market and those cards that you sell are available to buy and also as we'll see will affect the price of tulips going onwards in order to buy each player takes turns to go around the table and they can place two bid markers and then one bid marker in two sweeps around the table and when you place a bid marker you're simply putting it on a tulip in the market or that's just been sold saying that i wish to bid on that once everyone's placed their bid markers, we then resolve them. And we say for each tulip, if one person is on there, they get to buy that tulip at the current market price. And again, they're speculating that price is going to rise. Or if more than one is on there, the first player gets a choice to either bid at at least one more than the market price or to pass. And if players pass, the last player in turn order who's bid on there, if everyone else pass, must pay one more than the market price. If more than one player stays in, then they start a bidding war between them. When one, everyone else has dropped out apart from one, that player is going to pay the full price that they've bid to the bank in order to claim that tulip and put it behind their screen. All the other players that were part of that auction are going to split the difference between the market price and the actual sale price. And they're going to get, for some reason, a bonus from the bank into their money. So there's a bit of strategy there in whether you can go in to push up the prices and then hopefully pull out in time to make some money from someone else's madness in getting part of this tulip bubble. Once all the buying is done, we're going to look and see which colour of tulip has got the most cards left in the future market, those that haven't sold this turn and those that are still there for being sold from last turn. The most is going to drop down in price. Now, the three markers, there's only seven places in the actual grid that shows the prices, and those markers will never land on each other. So they might skip up to three in one jump if you like so the price can swing a bit and then we're going to see which color has got the fewest tulips left and the price of that is going to advance at the beginning of each round there's also an event which puts prices up or down or causes particular changes and that brings some volatility because players will be able to see other than that which prices are going to go up and down in the market like I say, if you ever get to 120 guilders, then you're going to win. Now, to do that, you must not have any tulips in hock to the bank. Why do I say that? Because when you're buying, you can pay outright. You can also tie up one of your bid markers by saying, yeah, I'm buying that, but the, the bank are going to pay for it. And that tulip goes in front of your screen. Your bid marker's tied up. You can choose to sell that normally, but not to a collector, or you have to pay the full price to get it back and be available to you to be sold normally. So there's kind of a way of taking credit, if you like. But if you're in credit, you can't win the game by spending that full 120 and also you have to buy back all tulips that you have in hock before we calculate who's got the most money if the crash happens in the market sure when that crash happens 
all of your tulips are worth nothing. This is a very much player-driven, economic, pure economy game. You always say you like economy games. Anything to tell us about Tulip Bubble? Well, I think, yeah, economy, stock market. We'll, we'll come to that. We'll come to that right now. Let's talk about the look of this game. It's where you like to start. I haven't started thus far this episode, Roland, on the looks. Fair enough. I've deliberately avoided starting on the looks of games. This one, if you hadn't have sort of told me about it, got me to, down at your house to play this game, I would never have picked this up in a thousand years. It looks beige, it looks dated, it really doesn't excite. And i tell you what, you know what it reminds me of? God, who does it remind you of? You go to one of these garden centres and you find these like little little books or games or puzzles sat in the bargain bin. That's what it yeah. reminded me. Something that is something for sale in the garden centre. You, I can't. Where do we go with how wrong you are here? <laughs> I don't think it looks dated. I think it's got decent quality components. I think it's got a certain look to it. It has got good quality it's components. Attempting to evoke. The tulip market in 1637 Amsterdam. I'm not sure that anything other than a fairly conservative graphic design would have worked with that thing. So it's attempting to evoke something that's dated. Yeah. It, it succeeded. And it, <laughs> so, so it's a hit. So, in a funny way, you told me this is an absolute hit in terms of looks and graphic design. Is that what you're telling me? I think it, it looks incredibly dull, but. Let's not judge a book or indeed a board game by its cover, shall we? <laughs> Let's not then. Okay, so it's a stock market game. And there's a fine balance always to be found when anyone's designing a stock market game in how much control the players have. Because if they have too much control, then you're getting into very weighty games. And if it's too swingy, then it can feel unfair. In terms of control over prices, Sean, you have some control for the timing that you choose to sell tulips, uh, when you want to buy them out of the market to affect which is going to be most and least. Other players obviously also have control. And sometimes a run might start on a colour, both in sales or in buying, and you look at it and go, oh, this is going to crash this colour, or it's going to absolutely boost this colour. I need to get in on this right now. And yet the events also come in and lead that unpredictability. Is there enough balance between those three factors for you in Tulip Bubble? I think you, you also factor in there, Ronan, as well, the collectors. Because, obviously, if somebody takes a collector, then you don't know what the next collector's going to want. They're all fairly similar, but very much lead to patterns that people might just happen to have in behind there. So you factor that in as well. I felt it really did kind of evoke that feeling of the stock market. Now... I've only played this one once, so a lot of mine are going to be questions back at you, Ronan, because I don't really think I know the game well enough to really start laying the law down about it. That's never stopped us before. <laughs> no, I think we one of us has always played a game a good few times before we review. I think that's kind of our standpoint on, on, on that debate. So I feel like here... Yeah, for me, it felt like I didn't have a lot of control. But as it was put to me when I was sat there whinging at the end, but I didn't control this. And you did that and it really knocked me about. It was told, well, that's a stock market, isn't it? Sometimes things happen. It crashes. You can't control it. Can, can you do the rest of the episode in that voice? <laughs> I thought I did every episode in that voice. <laughs> I really like it. I really like that one. I don't like that one. 
<laughs> I don't know, Shaggy. <laughs> um, yeah, it is the nature of stock market games. You're right. <laughs> kind of that's what you've thrown at me. Did you have a question, or were you just trying a loud voice to put me off my chain of thought? That's it. Whatever works. Whatever works. So yeah, it is. I was kind of kind of throw back at you, Ronan, that it is a really random game. But that kind of works because that's kind of what it's meant to be. Yeah. I th- so that was your answer. Your answer was that it's very random. That you didn't feel like there was a lot of player control in the prices. I think with clever people and people were able to read things, <laughs> do a bit of card counting. I think, yeah, there probably is. But not for me. To me, it's more open than that. To me, you can see all the whites are getting bought up. Okay, white is going to go up in price. I need to try and grab a white. Or, oh, goodness me, people are selling nine reds this turn. Red is definitely going to go down in price, pretty much, apart from that event, which might mess with it. I think there's more control than you're letting on. You mentioned the collectors there. I think one of the issues I'd say, and in fact, there's two issues, I will put it this way. Especially with more players, the player order becomes very important because when you go after collectors, you can't see what other collectors are going to be coming. So you're pretty much, until you learn the deck, I guess, you're going to be going whichever collector is available first. And then turn order can screw you because you could have got the tulips that are required by that collector in the same round as a person to your right, but they get to sell it and they get that boost of guilders, which then allows them to, to bully a little bit round with a little bit more money. Ah, it can be difficult, Sean, with the collectors. And then the fact that certainly in like a four or five player game, those collectors are going to run out anywhere before the end of the game, probably like 25% before the end of the game. And then some of the intrigue is gone because the collectors give you a target to buy towards and something to think about and go, oh, maybe I should go for this, maybe I should go for that. When they're gone, it gets a little bit duller. And I feel like I like that mechanism. It wasn't fully exploited in the game. They did give you that focal point as what you want to collect, but even within the collectors themselves, I felt that they weren't varied enough. I think somebody a lot more clever than I could possibly add in some different sort of set collections and some different variants to that to make it more interesting and a little bit... Actually, I'm, I'm almost counteracting my own thing, so if they were massively varied, then that would add to the the lack of sort of control over the game, but also it would make it a little bit more interesting. So you get like three C's and then the next one would be three B's. And yeah, it was, they weren't as interesting as they possibly could have. But you're absolutely right about them disappearing early. That took the wind out of the sails of the game a little bit. Cause everyone was kind of like, what do we do now? And, yeah, I, th- I think the more you learn the game, the more you start manipulating that market, and maybe that end phase will actually be the most interesting. But for our game, my one game of this, it kind of took the wind out of my sails. Yeah, no, I don't think it makes it more interesting when they disappear at all. I can't be going with that. Okay, game length then, Sean. So a stock market game, uh, does, does the length match up with the weight and the, and the decisions you were making? Again, Ronan, I want to put that one straight back to you because I played the one game and it felt to me that it went on a little bit long, but there was two brand new players playing the game. But but the rules overhead is very light. It is very light. There was a lot of learning or, or fighting the rules very much, was there? Not really, not really. Kind of, you played the pit stop because you always make us play a pit stop if you've covered the game. I was- 
reminding myself of the rules again because <laughs> I'm learning like 20 rules a week doing these bit stops. Even though I filmed it a few weeks ago, I was still like, okay, I've played it a few times and I still, I'm just going to double check. I'm just going to double check. He's, he's killing us with the pit stops. He just fight every every game that he's covered. It's like we have to gather around the telly to watch it's him. To remind, it's, you don't have to gather around. You're there already. It's to remind me. I don't care if you watch it or not because I've got to teach it anyway. Anyway, the game length. Game length, I thought was too long. I thought I kind of no, was I think, fading I out. I think it's affected the by the collectors because they go. It makes it feel longer. Maybe I, it almost gets to an anticlimax. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Okay, all right, Sean. To go on on your one play, give us your first impression thoughts of Tulip Bubble. Right, in my one place, so I go back to the story about me sitting there whinging in the corner, but oh, that affected me, and Rachel, who was literally one person in front of me in the turn order, twice she took things which cost me like 40 points, which was literally the win, and yeah, it just felt really harsh, but every time I complained about it, I was reminded, but that's a stock market. It does, it does exactly what it says in the tin. So if for, from that perspective... I think it is a very good stock market game. It captures the stock market really well. There's a nice economy to the game. It's just not for me because I found it a little bit frustrating when random things happened. I wanted a little bit more control. I like a bit more control in economy games. So they, not maybe not for me. I still think it's a good game. I'll say stock market games are not my style of game either at all. And I'm really, really terrible at them. And I'm really terrible at judging the flow and reading the other players. So I tend not to play them, to be honest with you. I also tend not to try and go with the flow in games, which really hurts you in this sort of a game. But I did enjoy Tulip Bubble. And it's one of the best stock market games I've played. So it's one of those situations where hopefully we've talked enough about the game that if this is the sort of style of game you like, there might be enough in there for you to pick up. I'm not going to give it, wouldn't get my personal like, great recommendation. It's always going to be in my collection. I'm going to play it 50 times. But if someone pulled it out, I'd certainly play it. And I think it's well designed. And I've enjoyed my plays off it. I won't be playing it forever, though. And that was Tulip Bubble. And before we go on to part two with our last three reviews, Rona's going to be popping up next with the details of our competition. So, it's less of a competition we've got for you. It's more a prize draw. But there is something you have to do to enter the prize draw. It's for a sealed copy of Brazilian Coup. It's just a little prize. We'll post it anywhere in the world. But in order to get your chance for a free game, here's what we want you to do. We want you to head to the Civilization A New Dawn. We just reviewed it. Pit Stop. You can find it on the Civilization A New Dawn Board Game Geek page. Or you can find it on YouTube by sticking in search Civilization and New Dawn. It will come up eventually, especially if you type pit stop in. On either of those two sites, if you thumb the video and we want you to comment, I am pit crew in the comments, that will enter you. If you do it on either site, it's one entry. If you do it on both sites, it's two entries into the prize draw. On the 21st of March, we are going to be drawing out from names in the hat. And one of you is going to get a copy of Cool. And we'll, of course, make contact with you through either site. So that's all it is. For chance of a free game, head to the pit stop for Civilization and New Dawn. Give it a thumb up on YouTube or BoardGameGeek and comment, I am Pit Crew, and you might just get yourself a free game. Onwards to more reviews. OK, 
Okay, so we are now going on to a column of fire, designed by Michael Reinet, coming from Cosmos, playing two to four players. This is the third game in the Ken Follett series, following on from Pillars of the Earth and World Without End. It is set in Europe during the reign of Elizabeth I, where Catholics and Protestants are vying for power across Europe, but here we're going to concentrate on England, France, Spain and the Netherlands. The players themselves are traders or merchants from wealthy families trying to exploit the ever-changing power balance and earn their fortunes. So how you play, you're going to get a starting religion in this game, and you're going to roll a die, and that's how long you'll be locked in to that religion. Each round in this game is a year, and each year is split into two half years. So the best way to talk about this is to go for the second half first, because that's how you get everything into your tableau, and then we'll talk about the first half then. What you have here is a board, and it's split into the four countries. Each of them have a deck of cards and a space for trading houses and also a space for religious dominance. There's also an action track and a score track on the board. So in the second half of the year, you're going to choose a character card by spending a die of that colour, because you will have rolled a number of coloured dice. Once you spend your die, you're going to be able to add a trading house on the same numbered spot of the area which the card is linked to. So if you buy an English person, you're going to place your trading house into England. You're also going to place a religious marker. Every card has a religious marker on it, and it's the so it will be Protestant, Catholic, or neutral. And you're going to add that to the board too. And last up, for the card itself, you're going to place the die on the card, and that's how many years you've got to have that character and the power that they give you. The last thing you're going to do in the second half is to use the action track. Now, the action track is an area where you just have to have the die of that color, and you move along to the next space of that color, and it does things like you can get goods from each of the areas you can trade into the areas to score points if you've got a trading house in there and various things you can do on this action track so that's what you do on this in the second half for the first half for the first half you're basically going to run your engine so you're going to decrease the value on the die to show that you've had a year with that card you're going to use the power on the card and if the card starts on one and would rotate to zero then you're going to lose that card and you also get the chance to change your religion if it is that your religion is on one as well if you ever fill up the religious dominance part of the board then you're going to trigger religious scoring and that's going to link directly to your trade houses so if you're on the number four spot of the trade house and you were of the religion that has won the dominance battle then you were going to score those points otherwise you're going to lose your trade house there are events in the decks if you turn up an event card something is going to happen some of them are like if you are a protestant in that area you lose your warehouse or you lose some points or if you're a catholic you gain things scoring is all about having trading houses and goods into your tableau and there are also bonus scrolls in the game ronan it's a much lighter game than the other ones in its series so let's just start it off it just doesn't fit mechanically with Pillars of the Earth and Well Without End. And it's been 
produced that way it's been packaged that way it's been put in a big box it's been said look here's the next ken follett one and i think you get it's a disservice to this lighter much more casual level game to attempt to pull it with those and it just doesn't make sense to me and it seems like mechanically a game has been shoehorned to try and fit a line it just should not be part of see now i kind of went the other way yes it was a bit of a surprise because i was expecting something of the sort of same depth as the first two and the kind of pillar started with a kind of medium and well the end was a lot meaner and a lot more frugal and it felt like almost a step up in complexity and this one's a massive step down so i do get what you're saying absolutely Roland. but i kind of like it because i think if you have another medium weight euro thrown into there you've got three medium weight euros very similar I kind of like that this one's different. That, that's called having a series of games, Sean. Because then you know what you're getting. I mean, how how does this find its audience? Because its audience is not Pillars of the Earth and World Without End players in general. It, it's a players of lighter games, and they're going to look at it and go, "No, it's it's probably like them. I don't want to play it." And then the players who, the, who do buy, it, expecting another Pillars of the Earth World Without End, are going to go, "What is this?" As you said, on your first play, you get surprised. Now we play games multiple times because we're going to review them. So therefore, after that first shock, you kind of go, oh, okay, so that's what it is. Let's play it now again to see how much fun it is. But lots of people aren't going to do that. I get your point. I get your point. I think, just speaking for myself, I was kind of pleasantly surprised because it was light. It does play very quickly. It is a, a bit of a brain workout, but obviously not in the same standard of the, as the other two. But yeah, I get what you're saying, but for me, it, it was a nice surprise. I haven't made a personal judgment on the game. I've said it doesn't fit the line. Moving onwards from there into what the game actually is as opposed to our expectations of it. There's a bit of thought to it. Yes, of course it's light. There's some random to it and all the rest of it. But there are some bits of it that do actually matter. And one of the things I do like the fact that it's a dice game is Sean. You don't always want to have high rolls because if you have a high roll and you choose a particular, let's say you choose a cloth merchant and you've got a six on there, you're going to end up getting six cloth back to you. And it's actually quite hard to use six cloth efficiently and therefore i like the fact that it mitigates the different roles you can get in a die because sometimes you just need i just want that actually that personally i only want to trigger it twice because that's the only amount of times it can be useful to me then i want it gone so i can move on and take other options and it's almost a different way of dealing with the luck of dice and i quite like it. i think it's quite an elegant way of doing that yeah the first time i played this game Roland, i kind of had that the mindset that more is better and i was continually hitting the cards for for long periods of time and very quickly you run out of dice and you you can't go on the action track because you've got nothing left you're not able to pick up sometimes even a character card and you're kind of locked into that one engine and you're not being able to react as well as you maybe might have if if you had the lower value so yeah definitely a different way of thinking and something that i was completely alien to at first i lost horribly in my first game because i went for that strategy <laughs> yeah it's interesting i also like that religion matters it's incredibly harsh when you've built up a decent level trade house and then the religion tick, ticks over and you lose that particular fight and you lose that trade house and then suddenly like say all that cloth you've built up you can't trade it there you can't get the best price and what religion you are actually counts and i think that's good the one thing i'd say about it was i would rather that your religion die had to be quite high every time so that you were investing and sticking with whatever, whatever religion you were choosing rather than you can roll a one and sort of switch across 
where it's convenient and then switch back again very quickly. I, I think I agree with you on this one as well, Ron. I think maybe a die that just had three to six on it, then you are invested and in maybe fighting for your religion more than just sort of kind of hovering to see who's got dominance. And also on this one, Ronan, I think you have to have a balanced strategy. I think there is you have to be mindful of all the mechanisms. There's not a lot there. You've got to be mindful of being traded, trading to certain countries and getting the right trade goods in. Be mindful of that action track and, and getting the best use of it. As you say, be mindful of having those trading houses and, be, and your, your religion and who's going to get dominant. So I think you can't really target one area in this game. You kind of have to be a jack of all trades. Yeah, and it forces you to do that with the four city as well. You're definitely best off with a trade house in each city so that when you do get to go on that sort of rondel, the action mechanism, whatever you're near, you can exploit and you can make the most money and you can take opportunities as they come up because it is very tactical. It's, can you do it now? Great. The strategy kind of comes in making yourself flexible enough. You're talking about the, the dice and having all high numbers. You lose flexibility and that's where you're going to lose that ability to pounce on opportunities to score points. Now, I've been quite complimentary and positive about this game, but there's a couple of couple of negatives. Uh, one for myself, and it's that I, I think the characters can be a little bit repetitive. You kind of get the same characters in each of the four countries coming up, and sometimes maybe not the most interesting. I think there are subtle changes, and there are some interesting ones, like Walsingham can alter the religious dominance in, in various areas, but mostly it's like, have a cloth, have, a, have an oar, have a beer. I think that kind of adds into the fact that, it, that that's part of the lighter weight of it is that you kind of know what's going to come up, so you can plan a little bit. And that when you've got three or four characters, if they all did something interesting, you're moving into a weight of game that, that, that they weren't after. The second one come, came from actually playing with other people. Now, I hadn't noticed it myself. It's got this lovely Michael Menzel artwork, fair enough. But does it pop? Does it actually pop? from the board can you tell the different areas i thought you could but other people have said to me no it just doesn't it doesn't pop you're not spotting everything on the board i was sitting here waiting for you to bring up the issues with the board i was sure you were about to start absolutely caning the board didn't occur to me until people started bringing it up ridiculous it's it's a massive board in which the only functionality really, oh, you put townhouses down, 80% of it is just artwork. And then the thing that you need to see is the rondel, which is squeezed into the bottom 5%, bottom right corner. And you cannot see what's on the rondel. And if you go to an area that lets you trade, all it gives you is a ship of, of two colours where you can trade. You cannot see them. And they've got like, the brown and the purple that dictate where you can go. You can't see what colours they are. It is the worst graphic design choice. It's one of the worst game boards I have ever played on in my life. Beautiful artwork everywhere. Functionality terrible. <laughs> I, I agree with the action There's track. not even spaces for the personalities, is there? I don't have to no, there isn't. No, no, they have to go off the side. That was that? that was the one issue I had. That was that was the issue I had, because they have to go off the side of the board. And it is a massive board, so you actually can't it reach. Hold, it doesn't hold the four cards it's supposed to hold. And other than that, it has to hold four sets of six slots for little bits of wood. And that's yeah, it. And around yeah. it. They should, they, they should have been the cards on the board, because Spain's way up the top, and you have to 
you have to ask people to hand it down if you're if you're the other end of the board. <laughs> yeah, I, I see it. it. It never really occurred to me, Ronan. Honestly, I, I don't know why. It just I was a bit annoyed Rundle. about the cards. I mean, I mean, I need to mention it about thirty times. The Rundle. Maybe I was always sitting on that corner. <laughs> it must have been. Well, you had the old magnifying glass out, Sherlock. Because, like, the, the just, just action spaces themselves are tiny. But the fact that the trades are these tiny, I mean, millimetres wide chips of similar colours. And you're supposed to, and you're, you know, wherever you sit around the table, that is actually one of the more, like, this is you have to make of whether to push forward and push on and go to the next space or the next space on which dice to use. Ah, oh, just shocking, shocking. Right, Ronan, I'm sensing we're getting to, towards that summing up okay. time. Right. I think a column of fire is a decent light game. It's got some interaction. It's got some planning. Does not fit in this line. And the production is way, way too big for the game that's been put out. If it had been released as a smaller box, little game... I think it would have found an audience, people that like games that are under an hour, that you have some planning and a bit of luck and you can kind of scooch over, over a little bit and there's lots of variety in various plays. You're not going to play the same game twice, really. Although there's small variety, there's variety there. It's completely missed its market. I think it's a beautiful game. I think it fits into the range in that it does remind you of the novels. Apparently Ken Follett said it's, it's the one that most evokes his novels. That's why Ken Follett's a novelist and not a board game. <laughs> I think <laughs> it doesn't sit in that sort of medium weight to your range, but I thought it was a, fre- a breath of fresh air. Yes, the board annoyed me a little bit, but it was so pretty, I didn't care. Maybe I was sitting by right by that action track, who knows, but it didn't bother me nearly as much as it did, Roland. I think there was very, there were very interesting fairly simple choices but again when they start to intertwine with each other that's my that's my word of this episode intertwine got it yeah yeah got it um when they start to intertwine with each other it makes a very interesting sort of battle and you do feel that those religions are warring against each other i liked it ronan it's going to stay in my collection not just because I want to complete the the, the, tri- the I trilogy. Think it might, it's because it makes it good on the shelf, isn't it? It does look good on the shelf, but I enjoy playing it, and Natalie enjoys playing it. And I think all bar one person I've ever played it with has enjoyed playing it. So that's a column of fire owner. Yes. So this is where we come in with another idea that we've blatantly stolen from other media and podcasts, like Dukes of Dice and uh, Heavy Cardboard. I'm, I'm sure other people do it. We put it out to our guild, the games that we were going to review, and we asked for opinions. Now, it hasn't been a roaring success because only one person had played one of the games. <laughs> they didn't get many minutes. But people said they'd love to join in, and they will give opinions with games they've played them. So we're going to ask you to head to the Game Pit Guild and Board Game Geek. It's guild number 1588. We're going to put up there the games that we're going to be reviewing, and we'd love for your comments to come in so that we can share them. And as well as just having our perspective or our guest perspective, we'll get your perspective on it, and we'll comment on those. Now, the one person that had played he actually turns out he played with sean it's chris marling designer he's been on here he's a mate of ours so you've heard of him before he said some similar things to us but i'm not sure he came to the same conclusion sean so the first thing was the board beautiful art terrible functionality yeah yeah he he was the person i was talking about when he said it just didn't pop so yeah (laughs) yeah i was i knew that was coming Another thing that you mentioned he said a lot of the action cards are really boring you can be faced with four really dull cards to me i think Yes, but 
it's a, it's a little tableau you're trying to build that's interesting as opposed to each individual card. And the idea is that you have two, three, four of them running at once and that's what's going to give you your interest. Sean, any thoughts on that? Right, well, exactly that. I think they, they can be a bit monotonous when the same ones, as I said, are coming out time and time again. Individually, they're not that interesting, but I like the way they all tie together and they kind of eke you in the direction that you want to go. It's not a deep game, so they're not going to be super interesting anyway. Okay, so he's kind of saying the same thing as us. Is it the randomness overall was too much for him that uh, people don't get enough of a chance to change their religion in the whole game, which is one of the few possibly interesting things, and not getting a chance to do it took away something. I guess he was frustrated. And in the end, he said he was bored. In his play, it felt like they had much less agency than other players, and that he had more in- and that other players had more interesting decisions to make. It's just a bad design. It felt like an early prototype, not a finished product. The fact that I had less interesting decisions was because of too much randomness, not bad play or my decisions. Chris, not a fan, sure. To be fair, it was there was some bad play, Chris. There was some bad. <laughs> there always is when Chris plays. There is. Right, we're going to shuffle onwards, and we're going to we're going to reach for the stars again. Back back to a sci-fi theme, Sean. Go around and take us there. It's Reworld, 2017 from Egert Spieler, two to four player game, taking 90 minutes from Kiesling and Kramer. In Reworld, players are going to competitively be attempting to collect units and resources from a space station in order to take them to terraform a new planet. It's very much a game of two halves. In the first half, each player is going to get dealt a hand of cards, and the cards are numbered number one to five, with varying amounts obviously due to random. And you've got five rounds of this in which you're going to be using those cards you get to play down to the space station to take units. Now, when you play a number down, if there's no cards adjacent to the space you're going to to take a unit, then that's fine. Once there's adjacency, you must play the same card. Any two cards act as a wild. There's two different numbers adjacent. You have to use different combinations. And you're attempting to maximise your hand each round of these five rounds in order to drag units. Now, when you do take a unit off the space station, it goes into one of five rows to the left of your own spaceship. And the row it goes into will correspond to the card you've played to take the unit. Everyone's going to load up the left side of that board. Now, On the second half of the game, in your own individual tableau of units you've built up using the cards, you're going to take them one by one, and you must take them always from the very left of any of the five rows, and shift them across to the right-hand side, which represents now your terraforming efforts on the planet awaiting the population to turn up. There are terabots which are going to help you found. You can have a maximum of five cities. They come in A to E. And you have to get terabots down before you can start adding on. You can add on different color of building units. Now, building units can't move by themselves. You've got to use a different unit called shuttles to move them across. And you can only ever have one of the five different colors of builders in any of your five cities. You're attempting to, to get the same color going along. There's a wild you can use to add on and make your row longer and you'll find out why you want to do that those shuttles that can bring builders can also go and add to your defense by flipping over most of them and you can build a shield wall above your zone and again that's going to score you points at the end of the game there are satellites that you can bring across they'll power themselves they're either going to score you immediately for certain conditions so if you grab satellites early you can attempt to build your tableau towards that or again you can flip them and add them to the defense of your planet In the second half of the game, all the while, there are ships following you, which basically mean that you're going to score points as you go for certain achievements, be it for emptying certain rows on the left-hand side, for using a set number of shuttles rather than a certain number of satellites, for reaching a certain length of city, and pretty much anything you can do in the game, you'll be able to score a few points as you go. However, the 
majority of scoring usually is going to be at the end game when the huge population ship turns up. You're then going to look at all six rows from defence down through your city's A to E. Whoever has the longest of those rows is going to score points, most for the shields up in the sky and lowest for E down the bottom. And second and third, depending on number of players, are also going to score some points. And if you have any of those rows empty, you're going to lose a small handful of points. And once that has been concluded, whoever scored the most victory points is going to win the game of Reworld. Sean, this is very much a puzzle game that plays a bit differently to many other games that I have played certainly and it took me a little while to wrap my head around it so Roland, we covered this in our treasure hunts for Essen uh, last year and the rule book of this one really really put me off it and I, I I voted it as a trap because of that. Now, I think there is an, a, re, a quite a steep learning curve to this game. I think you do have to get down, you have to play it, preferably be taught it, because I, I struggled with the rule book. But I think once once it clicks, is it's there for you. Now, whether it goes beyond that, then we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later. But yeah, I think the, the learning curve is there. An experienced player will always beat you, but once it's clicked, it's it's for you. It's, it's ready. I think the pattern is hard to grasp. I, I, there's not that many rules. You're right, the rule book is slightly confusing. There aren't that many rules to it. I think the problem is that it's very hard. Actually, I was thinking when you talk about Column of Fire, you always teach the second half of a round before the first half of a round because you have to know what you do in the second half for you know how to do the first half, right? But in Column of Fire, it's to do with the round. In this case, it's the whole game. You almost have to have played the second half and scored it before you really know what you're doing in the first half. And that's why I think quite often the first game is going to be difficult and a bit of a wash. And like you say, experienced players are going to win because it's almost impossible to really get across how that how that scoring is going to work until you've gone through it yourself. Yeah, it's almost like two completely different games, isn't it? Although they are absolutely importantly linked together, the two halves of it, the, it doesn't, the first half really doesn't give you a feel until you know what the second half is going to do. So, yeah, I felt like I was playing almost two different games, right? Okay, yeah, uh, I, and I do go to it, and, you, and it's getting that link that's the problem. It's, it's the couple of face. Okay. Let's talk about the first half. The first half, you are playing down cards and claiming units, and that should be setting your tableau and setting yourself up for, because pretty much the second half, you're, you're almost running on auto. There are not so many decisions. This should be where the excitement and the decisions are in the card play. Did you feel like you're making enough decisions that mattered in that, that real heart of the game there, the first half? Yeah, again, once once I knew the game, I felt like we were competing for things. You could you could set people up and make it harder for them to get things because you have to match the card adjacent. Otherwise, you have to pay a lot more cards to get the the units that you want. So you're kind of looking around, right? Okay, I've got a choice out of maybe three spaces that are kind of wide open. How's it going to affect Ronan? How's it going to affect Natalie? How's it going to affect Rachel? Oh, hang on, that one's going to stitch up Ronan. I'll take that one. So you are looking around, you are interacting with each other in a very simple framework. But I think it was it was there was a bit of fun there for sure. My, my problem with it is that my expectations and my decisions have to be front weighted in that first half because the second half just runs itself, and 
you, there might be a slight choice between row two or row four or whatever it might be, but really very limited. And all the weight is weighted on there. And yeah, I was doing a puzzle. I was never excited by any of my choices in that first half, Sean. I think excited would be stretching it. But I was certainly interested in some of my decisions. And when I didn't have a, a real decision to make, like a, a really crucial decision, then it was always nice just to look around and say, well, okay, I'm just going to make it a bit harder for someone else. So, yeah, it was interesting a and mean. a little bit of fun. Just a bit mean. A bit mean. Mainly to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as as standard. But standard, the puzzle in itself is interesting. Certainly, while you're trying to work it out and going through it, and and trying to get how these rows, what the best pattern is, I think I'm trying to get to how to make sure you've got shuttles free. Because if you have builder units on the left hand side, they can't move themselves, so you can't tie all your shutters in deep, or you can't use them too early, and that's part of the timing. And making sure that your terabot goes across to start the city before you try to start adding builder units and not messing up that whole timing of it. That puzzle in itself. Is, is interesting, but again, maybe not so excitement. Can I just come back about the second half of the game? He, he says it, Ronan, that it kind of runs itself. I I see what you're getting at, and it, it, to a degree it did, but I did feel like you were, you were, there were priorities to be made in even that second phase, because so you do have a few choices there in that other people are going for the same scoring cards as you are, and you're trying to get in there first, Ronan, so you've got that choice of what components to ship around, because you're using the ships to carry things, and to place them onto the, the various rows. Okay, okay. I, I will say about those VP tiles, though, that I th- felt like they rewarded the rich. And not just a very obvious one that gives the first player to hit 70 points, they get seven extra points. But also, if you're doing well, and I know, yeah, you score points if you're doing well. But if you're doing well, you're going to score points at the end anyway. This kind of almost rubs your face in it as you go along and scoring those, those smaller ships, those achievements, if you like, by emptying rows and using shuttles. Maybe it's because I'm bad at the game, but I always felt like that was a little bit too much. I was like, gee, I know they're doing better than me. Stop giving them points this whole time. I can see I'm 50 points behind, and I know we're going to score points at the end, and they're going to score more points at me, and this is going to be a washout. I'm not going to lie to you. You are pretty shocking at this game. I'm terrible. You really are. I told Sean, well, first time I taught you, right, and I've said to everyone I've taught, don't do what I do. Don't. I cannot get this game. I'm no good at this game. I... Really enjoyed, certainly at least my first few plays of it. I cannot be good at this game. I don't know what it is. <laughs> okay, so Ronan, you kind of hinted at something there. You enjoyed your first few games of this. It's got that learning curve, but once the learning curve stops, does the interest stop? Does it? Does it have any longevity to this game? Is it the same puzzle over and over again? It has very limited longevity it is the same puzzle over and over again (laughs) whether i could still improve at it it, that definitely for sure i could get better at the game but i'm not sure i want to because game seven is the same as game one and i never felt that there was enough of a change up the achievement tiles are the same each time the units are the same each time it also, I tried it different player accounts. It doesn't scale very well because the number of units available stays the same. So it's definitely best with four where things are tight and you, you're definitely going to miss out on certain cities. When you go down to three and then, oh, God forbid, you played with two, terrible. Because it's just too loose and you get too many things. It's all loosey-goosey. And even that fun of the tight puzzle is gone. But 
it just died. It, it was fun. I was like, oh, yeah, I've got to work this out. And then the second game, oh, I'm getting a bit better. And the third game, I'm getting a tiny bit better. And the fourth game, I'm getting... And then the fifth game, oh, it's the same. And the sixth game, oh, this really is the same. And seventh game, oh, okay, oh, I'll teach Reworld. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it wasn't the Energizer Bunny. <laughs> You've died on me. You've died. <laughs> so, and I think, actually, I was... I knew we were going to get to this point, and as we were talking, uh, I, I really hate for this to sound awful. I felt like our different number of plays was becoming obvious in how we were answering questions because you're a couple of plays in and still on that upward. Oh yeah, but this and that. It's interesting. I'll work it out, and I'm definitely on the downwards going. Yeah, but once you do, it's kind of right. Okay, I think it might be time to to sum up before you fall asleep on us, right? <laughs> Okay, so for me, it's very much an interesting puzzle, which is way better than I thought it would be. The rule book, the look of the game, I thought this was going to be a surefire miss for me, but it proved it proved better than that. However, although there are some interesting choices in when you play it for the first few times, it's an okay game, but it's really lacking the magic of a collection keeper, mainly because of those longevity problems. As I said, I'm only two, three games in, and I'm already starting to feel that my third game was actually exactly the same as my first game. Yeah, I might have arranged things in a slightly different order, and I might have grabbed a couple more of those point tiles, but really, did, did I have any more fun? I don't think so. Was it any more interesting? Absolutely not. It's on the decline for me. So yeah, real world, it's okay. But I'm I'm not going to be seeking it out to play anytime soon. I'm sorry I dissed you there, but I, but I thought you were some wide-eyed injury there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wrote here, this was an evolution of confused to interested to bored. It got too samey. It felt too small scale. And I, maybe this is a mental thing whereby it's about terraforming. There's a very big other terraforming game that's very big scale and very interesting and lots of options. This never felt like terraforming, ever. It felt like laying a little puzzle down. There was no excitement. It faded badly. So Reworld, play it at a games cafe, borrow a mate's copy, play it at your game club, play it a few times and enjoy it. And if you feel like it's starting to fade, stop there and keep your happy memories. Let that photograph fade into obscurity and happiness. Don't push it too hard, because I don't think it's got the legs. Now, Sean, I hope there's no fallout from that review. You're an idiot. That's true. That was a terrible segue. Anyway, we are going to move on to one of the biggest IPs in the video game world. It's Fallout, designed by Andrew Fisher and Nathan Hayek. Coming from Fantasy Flight Games, it's one to four players. As I said, it is based on the really popular video game of the same name, and it finds players exploring a post-nuclear wasteland as one of the people or creatures found in this new world. And a very quick rundown of Fallout. Basically, there's a big nuclear war. People are ushered into bunkers, and... Your bunker goes wrong in the game, and you wake up hundreds of years later, and it's just this post-apocalyptic Mad Max-style wasteland with massive bugs and mutants and all sorts wandering around. And you're basically trying to find out what happened to your family and what went wrong, and that's how it goes. In the game, the board game, you've got a modular board 
with some already visible locations, but most of them are hidden and you have to go and explore those. The player characters have individual starting powers, and on your turn you're going to have two actions. Your actions are quite simply move, explore, fight, encounter, quest, or camp. So moving is obviously moving around the map, exploring is flipping those tiles over, fight, you can go in and fight the various creatures you're going to encounter. Uh, when you have an encounter, you can, you're can you flipping cards, reading narrative on cards, and the quests that you're going to dig up and find and to go to do these and various tasks. And camp is quite simply regenerating all your hit points and flipping back anything that's been walked, as Ronan likes to say. Creatures are going to activate and to... When you're at this game, you're going to have to complete missions, you're going to have to fight the wasteland creatures, and the wasteland creatures are mutants, humans, bugs, robots, and monsters. You level up, and leveling up, we'll talk about it later, is very, very simple, but quite a effective use of leveling up. And you're going to level up in strength, perception, endurance, charisma, intelligence, agility, and luck. And the sharp-eared of you will realise that that spells special. Which is Ronan, you're special. Mummy says I'm special. (laughs) (laughs) Victory in this game is gained by amassing influence points. And these are gathered with agenda cards. A very quick introduction, Ronan, because I think a lot of this game really hinges on the narrative. I think there's not that much in it in terms of mechanisms and doing things. It's all about that narrative. What do you think? I think if you were brand new to modern board games or fancy flight games, that sort of style, I think there'd be quite a lot mechanically to get your head around. But for this type of game, they've gone with the obvious. They've gone with the simple. They've done that obviously for reasons. So for us, we kind of go, oh, there's not that much mechanically to it because we've done them all before. We know about moving around. We know about flipping over. We know about multiple choices on an encounter card. The levelling up system, like you say, is very intuitive. It all works very nicely. The reason, obviously, they've done this is, Sean, that they've got a massive IP and they're expecting to get video gamers to buy this board game. Of course, the hobby's grown a lot. It's not like 10 years ago. There are many more what we might snobbily call board game literate people around who are going to be used to these mechanisms, but they're going to get people who are not used to them. So they couldn't have gone a full-on descent level of intricate rules, and they haven't, and they've made it simple. And that's fine, absolutely fine. Well, that means that for a Fallout game, though, they have to then reproduce the feel of being on an adventure, in a story, exploring being a survivor and being part of a bigger narrative, which is a lot of what the fallout was about. There's stuff going on around you. There's things you don't know exactly what they are. There are factions. And you're part of it. You're, you're one of the billiard balls knocking around in this story. That's what they had to do, Sean. Do you feel that they achieve that within their, for them at least, more limited rules set? I think they did, right? I think they went for it massively. I think they understood that challenge and they kind of took it up and hit it head on. Because what you get in the game is a huge pile of what are effectively story cards. There are missions, there are cards that go into the various decks when you go exploring in certain areas that all link into a story and continuous story. The only slight disconnect you get with that story is that, say, you might be in one corner of the board, I might be in another corner of the board. You go and talk to someone and that asks, oh, um, 
I've lost my I've lost my husband. Can you go and find him? I might continue that story in a completely different location, miles away, because I've just gone into that particular deck of cards. That's the only slight disconnect, but I did feel like I was part of that wasteland. I did feel that it really captured that feeling of fallout really strongly. I might pull you up for a second on Go that. Go on then, pull me up. These. Uh, well, no, I agree with you in terms of story, actually. Sorry, I, sh- I should answer the main point that I was trying to make for myself. I agree with you. I think they've captured the story. They've captured a narrative. I'm not sure that it drives the game and the end game, which I'm sure we're going to be discussing, but I really feel felt immersed in it. I felt immersed in the setting. I felt like I was exploring, and I loved those side quests and stories that we did. In terms of the massive amount of, of variety, I'm not... I'm not happy with that because for, there's two sort of basic areas you can explore being cities and ruins or settlements and ruins. There's only eight basic cards for those two main things that you're going to encounter all the time on the board. And while you may add to them by uncovering different things in different scenarios, it's still a base deck of eight cards that you're drawing from. And this feels like, we talked about it with Civ, that they are giving you the basis of a game as opposed to the full expanded universe of it. And I think that this corner's cut a bit too starkly, especially in terms of that. I think it feels like you those eight cards are a bit shallow. And certainly when I first took the game out of the shrink and started investigating, I was worried about that. But I think the times that you actually go into the ruined cities and to the trading areas, I can't remember the exact terms for them, I think they're actually quite limited. You tend to be going to do a specific task if a card goes in there. So I didn't actually get through them all in any one player fallout. So it feels shallow, but but it doesn't work out that way. Most of them in every play. You see, I'd say, yeah, you see a good four or five of them, and after two plays, you have definitely seen every card in there. So, yeah, you, you're right. It, it, it does feel a little bit shallow, but I, not as shallow, not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I can't see that having a 30 cards in each of those decks could have been that much of a push. That brings me back to a point that we were talking about earlier, was that, but this is available for £50. It's not a £120 big box game. This is something that... What would we rather have? Would we rather have this £50 copy of Fallout, which allows us to buy the game, play it, see if we like what they've done with the system, and then decide if we want to spend more on it? Or do we want the £120 game that's got everything in already, and you have to invest that much in to be able to start playing the game, but once you are in it, you've immediately got all that extra content available to you? Yeah, I think it depends on your standpoint. I think if if you've played this game and you already know you want it, maybe you'd think, actually, no, that's not great. But as you said, if you haven't played it, it's it's a good dipping your toes in mechanic almost and way of doing business. But for me, Fallout wasn't the worst culprit, let's just say that, for for that type of marketing. Only four scenarios. I mean, there are only four scenarios. The scenario set up which two factions are going to be fighting over the map, if you like. And you have chances to support either faction. And they set up the main quest line that you'll be going through, as well as the side quests that are available. Sean, did you find the scenarios replayable? Or was it a case of, okay, I've played the first quest 
scenario once or twice, I need to move on. I played the second one once or twice, I now need to move on. And because that would really limit the plays in that box. Yeah, you're kind of talking to the wrong person here. I've played the first scenario five times uh, because I've played with I've played with new people so many times. Every time someone comes, they're like they're really interested because. But now Paula, I'm talking to the right person. Was it still fun? It is, absolutely. I think you start seeing the same stories coming coming out again, but there's so many side quests you can go off in different directions and and you can try different things. I think I've got to the end of the lifespan of the first scenario, Ronan, and I'm enjoying getting into the the subsequent scenarios. But I think for those five games. I think I got my play. I got a good 12, 15 hours of gameplay out of that. That And everyone seemed to, to enjoy the different storylines that they, just that first scenario brought up. Right, okay, Ronan, so there is an elephant in the room with this game. Yeah, there is. <laughs> we, we won't be the first of people to talk about this. We won't be the last people to talk about this. We've talked about the body of the game, the storytelling and kind of the story driving forward, the actual feel of the game and the, the enjoyment of the game to a large degree. But as you said before, Ronan, it really doesn't drive that end game scoring very well at all because that is a massive misstep by Fantasy Flight. It doesn't work, does it? It's absolutely awful. I mean, truly, truly awful. So the way it works is that from the two cup quests you do, the main quest will give you the ability to help support a faction and push a faction's agenda forward. The side quest you do allows you to draw cards which might help you score points. Now, if you've got victory point cards that support one of the factions and that faction is further ahead, they're worth a number of points equal to how far ahead they are. The problem is you're drawing them at random when you do a side quest. So if one of the factions is four spaces ahead of the other one, and Sean draws one of these victory point cards that supports the behind faction, he's going to score a point. If I, for doing exactly the same thing, draw it for the faction that's ahead, I might score five points for doing exactly the same thing as Sean's done. In a game where that can be half your winning score if you're playing with more players, just on top decking a card. The whole faction support system doesn't work. It's great narratively. You can feel these two things going on. And every time you come to a scenario, you have a choice to support this faction or that faction. And the choices you're doing make sense. Support the robots or dob the robots in, the synths in. But it then doesn't translate to a satisfying victory condition. Yeah, there's there's another way that it goes wrong as well, Ronan. It's... Because you're obviously supporting the different, the two different factions, and you're pushing your agenda along. So if you get kind of equal people, maybe two against two, or one against one, or even two against one, but that one still still manages to push their faction along, what you find is that they they kind of move alongside each other, and if any faction gets to the end of the track, everyone loses. See, the last game I played. Myself and the other two players, we got to the point where we couldn't push the factions any further because we would have ended the game. None of us had enough victory points to to win, and it was it was literally just, what do we do? How long do we carry on for? And in the end, we just called it. I think one person was a point away from winning, and then we said, right, okay, you you've won because this game could go on for hours. 
and we it just wouldn't end. And then, as I had said, if you do get that faction that pushes on, then it could be completely random. I know in a game that we played Ronan, when we first played it together, I had done about six or seven quests to your two or three, and you won the game because you top-decked uh, a four-pointer. Uh, I, I also unlocked a vault. Let's not downplay the, the magnificence of that. <laughs> I'm sorry, when you did it, it was, it was pure skill. Sorry, I forgot about that. <laughs> Yeah, there are vaults you can go into and you interact with the dwellers and you're making choices and you definitely do not have full information on what's going to happen from your choices. So that is also cool, especially given that I played yeah, the original Fallouts back in the day when you were the vault dweller and all that. Anyway, yes, but here's one thing I will say. For as terrible as the victory conditions are, this is one of the games in which the victory itself is one of the least important things. And to be honest with you, did I feel like I beat you in a game? Did I feel like someone else had won in a game? Not really. I felt like we'd all play the game. We'd all had fun. I didn't really care who won. So as bad as it is, for for this game, it didn't actually ruin it for me. Yeah, yeah, Ronan, that's, that's very much the point that I'm driving at is that I enjoy this game for what it is. Now, I'm really angry at Fantasy Flight for... for <laughs> for potentially in my mind not play testing it enough because it was obvious every reviewer that i've seen has picked it up straight away every game player that i've played with has picked it up straight away that that is the a game problem pit, never knowing the original <laughs> indeed, <laughs> indeed but it's, it's so obvious yeah but look help helps out there right there are already fixes on Board Game Geek. There's, a, I've seen at least two different variants. One which which changes up quite a lot of stuff. The other one is when you finish, you score points for various stuff for having kept over caps as money, for having leveled up your character, for having done this and done that, and, and some of the cards as well. People are fixing it already. So if you go on BGG and look under there, you'll find a system that suits you better. But it, that's not to let FFG off the hook. The, the last thing I want to do, Sean, is that that's that's the low-picking fruit going after the victory conditions. I have got mixed feelings on the levelling-up system. So let's explain how it works. So I, I spelled out that special earlier with strength, perception, etc. When you get experience points, you will already have some of those letters on your player board. When you get experience points, so say that you've got the S and the A from special. So I, I might be sitting on where I've level, just leveled up. So if I get three experience points, I'm going to move my counter to the S. I've got to jump straight ahead to the A. And because I've got no other letters, I'm going to go all the way back to the point in which I level up. And then I'm going to choose from two different letters. And if any of them are different, I get to choose and place them onto my board. And that makes it harder for me to level up because now I've got three spaces in which I must stop my dobber when I'm leveling up, and that's how leveling up works. Now, the letters themselves really correspond to... There are weapons and items that will require you to have a certain letter, so obviously the bigger guns will want you to have the S for strength, and then they allow you to re-roll some of your dice in a fight, for, for instance. So that's how leveling up works. Ronan, you, you said you have mixed thoughts about it. Tell us. I love that system. I think it's brilliant. I think it's a fantastic way to, to deal with it very, very simply. It's visual. The letters idea is cool. If you do draw out two letters, you put them both. You, you get something else, you get a perk, which is like a one-off super bonus you can have. All of that works so nicely and so elegantly, but you don't feel unique. 
because everyone levels in the same way and everyone chooses a particular character at the beginning and they have one particular thing that's unique to them uh, that they, they might move slower but they're stronger or they might move quicker or whatever it might be but that never advances and you never increase and you never get your own leveling up you're the same as everyone else and that's the one bit that i didn't like about it mechanically fantastic my character doesn't feel unique Again, I'm kind of feeling where you're coming from, but I'm not quite with you, Ronan. I, I thought, yeah, like you, I thought it was a really slick mechanism and it really, really effective at what it needs to do. I kind of tied in the different letters with what they're supposed to be. So if you've got a knife, you really want to be agile. So you need that A to be able to re-roll and to, to leap in and stab. Some of the weapons and stuff like didn't make sense in the in the penalties that they gave you, but certainly in the skill that you have to use to to get the most out of them, I felt that they did kind of make it a little bit unique. Maybe not to my character, but it kind of tied in with that feeling. Yeah. Well, we'll agree to disagree there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think we both agreed that it is a very clever mechanism in itself. For sure, for sure. So, Fallout. I love the experience of playing the game. I enjoy myself, I engross in the story, I'm engrossing my character, I go off on my own little path, mostly because I really don't care who's winning, I don't care, use the variant victory point conditions, please do, go on board game geek, find one, just give it a go, it's going to be better than what's in the rule book, no matter, even if a lunatic designed it, it'll be better than what's in the rule book. I don't need to play the game with more than two people, okay if, you know, if I was with more and they were dying to play it of course I would but I'm not sure that it would add much to the game for me other than a, a more bad jokes going around and that's part of the game as well is that the players make this it's a narrative experience you're not looking for something tight and deep decisions you're looking to go along go through a story pick your own path through this world and just discover the game is dying for more content I was okay with the size of Civ New Dawn. I think there's depth there. I'm not sure there's depth of gameplay in Fallout. I think this is a game that's more about experience, where for the more content, the better. And I think they need to support it very quickly with an expansion, with more options when you're going, more of those base exploration cards, and better scoring. Fallout, Sean. Yeah, so for me, Fallout is very much for people who are looking for that narrative experience, people who are already in love with that Fallout video game, or just like that post-apocalyptic wasteland field to game, because it evokes all of those, and it really does encapsulate that world really well. It is a, a great storytelling game, and I feel like this one, very much the way Ronan feels about Mansions of Madness, the second edition, in where he feels it, you know what, it's not a massive amount of choice to be made and maybe game is pushing it a little bit but for sitting around enjoying a story unwinding enjoying spending time with somebody in a world that you're really interested in i think it's absolutely perfect i enjoy the experience of playing fallout i hate the end conditions but you know what as i said they've already been fixed and even if you just stop when somebody's got eight points and they need ten, so be it. You've still enjoyed what is effectively the story of Fallout. And that concludes our reviews for today. And we're going to join you in the outro where we're actually going to be telling you which of the six games we've looked at today are our favourites and maybe which are the weakest. Sure, this is not 
just an outro. This is a brand new spanking formatted outro with opinions and a top six. Dun, dun, dun. That's the sort of reaction I was looking for. Okay, everyone has <laughs> promised. We're going to fire into ranking these games from six to one. Sean, you up first or am I up first? What do you want? What do you want? Go on, I'll go first. I'll, I'll, I'll upset you. Hit me with your six. My number six is Reworld. Yes, I had three good games of this, decent games of this, but I never really want to play it again, and I'm quite bored of it now. Oh, damn. Damn. If this, if this had been after three plays, this would have been in with the top three games, which I said are probably a level above the bottom three, because my number six is also Reworld. And it's fallen that far over the course of another few plays. So, Ooh. yeah, longevity, definitely a problem here. And both of us making Reworld our number six. That's not great. <laughs> okay. Yeah, number five, Sean? Uh, I feel bad about this because I do think it is a good game. So you, you said would say it. But my number five is Tulip Bubble because I just didn't get on with it. I found it frustrating. And, yeah, it, the stock market games just really aren't my thing so i think it is a strong game but not not in the style that i want okay my number five is column of fire i actually think it's a decent game and anything above this i'm happy to play again it was too light terrible design choice didn't fit that line it's an interesting enough diversion for under an hour but not something that I'll be desperate to play but i think a decent game fair enough okay my number four is Column of Fire. So we were close with that as well. I think it's it's super light. I do enjoy playing it, but the three that are above it all all are are superior in in their own way to it by quite some bit. And my number four is Tulip Bubble. This has been... (laughs) Did we sound like we were agreeing this much during the course of the episode? I wasn't... I think so. I think I think we were in a, a an accord. We 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 disagreed on minor quibbles. I don't think we disagreed fundamentally on anything. I quite like in doing this now because it's solidifying what we actually think of the game. Tulip Bubble again. Uh, yeah, it was. It's interesting. It's just not my style. And if it is your style, certainly check it out. And that's really where it loses the points. Where it, it's not in my personal enjoyment zone. But a well designed game and definitely worth a look. Tulip Bubble, my number four for this episode. Sean, your three. So this is when it came became quite difficult. It was, it was quite easy to rank the bottom three, which is usually the bit I struggle with. But for me, I think just outside the the top two is Civilization for me. I think it's it's a really good game. I think that, that mechanism with the cards really had to be intrigued. But I think Clash of Cultures is still my favourite Civ game, so that's why I've ranked it down. My number three is Empires of the Void 2. I think it did some great things with narrative. I like the lack of downtime. It is a very good game, and one I'll be happy to play, I'm sure, again and again, but not too close together, because I'm not sure it's robust enough for, for really repeated plays. And I'm not sure I hit the highs of of excitement or really memorable individual moments of it and that's where i think it falls behind the other two games i think that civ is way more playable and more deep and fallout has got real highs of gameplay that empires of the void 2 can't match so that's why it came at three off a top three if you like for the episode okay so my number two and this this could have gone either way my top two i've gone for fallout 
think just because that glaring error with the scoring has just pushed it down. I think if that scoring had been on point, this was an easy number one. I really enjoyed the narrative experience of Fallout. I'm a Fallout fan anyway, so yeah, I think they did very well to capture that world. And my number two is also Fallout. And I'm just going to sandbox you and go, yeah, really nice experience. I didn't let the victory points really sway me very much because if I had it, would have fallen below Empires of the Void 2. It's just, it's, it's if you're offering me a Fallout board game, it's kind of almost a dream come true of it because I think it captures a lot about the game. There's interesting, there's different ways you can go down. You can really go after combat. You can explore the vaults. You can explore side quests. You can explore main quests. Loads going on, but but needs a bit more content, a bit more variety in there. But to stop being a real top, top class game, but Fallout's my number two for the episode. I mean, your number one, Sean, must be... Empires of the Void 2. I thoroughly enjoyed my games of this to date. It's everything I wanted in the evolution of Empires of the Void 1. I think there is that narrative experience, that craving games. There's also that economy going on, which I also crave in games, and I think it merges the two quite nicely. And here's that word again, it intertwines them, Ronan. Intertwines, smooth, yeah. striking, beautiful. <laughs> which leaves my number one, a civilization, a new dawn. It started out, I'm not chatbot on a similar path to Reworld, actually, in that, the first game was a bit puzzling and I got destroyed. I was like, how did you win so badly? And then the puzzle, I, my enjoyment of it grew, but where Reworld fell off, Civ is just going from strength to strength to strength. And every time I play it, I'm discovering new things. Uh, I'm discovering new combinations. I'm just finding depth after depth in this game. And I suspected in a 10 by 10 that that would happen with it. It is happening. It's fulfilling its promise. And if it continues on this path, this could really shoot into my top 50, to be honest. It's it's really on, on that sort of trajectory for me. So it makes it my clear number one, which means we don't have a clear number one. No, we've got a three-way tie, haven't we? We have, yeah. So <laughs> I said going at the beginning, I've got a top three. It sounds like you've got a top three. So we're just going to say... Empires of Void 2, Fallout, Seven New Dawn, any of them sound interesting to you, they're all very enjoyable. It's a joint first. Game pit recommended. <laughs> You're going to hit it with a hammer. It's pit stamped. It's, it's something like pit stamped. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to work on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Cool, that was fun, man. That was cool. I think you're wrong about Civ, but other than that, great. Other than that, other than that. Okay, so what have we got coming up, Ryan? Episode 100 is like that annoying imp on our shoulder that just won't go away. That is oh, coming. We're still dealing it with it. It is your Moby Dick. It is my Moby Dick. Please, if you if you still want to get involved, please do <laughs> email us. We've got loads of questions already from people, but if you if you think you've got a question or just a point you want to make, please email us. I'll, we'll give you the details later. Ronan, we're off to Aircon very soon. It's, it's very close now. I'm really excited. It's within two weeks now. We're going to be there. I've got a couple of messages to answer about people looking to play games with us yes we're going to be there I'm going to set up at least one or two games of Dark Moon Sean's interested in playing Orleon uh, I'm going to bring Parley with me uh, probably not alone some of those games that we can play in a group and have a chat and have a laugh we'll definitely be hanging around at the bar in the evening so having a couple of beers that'll be fantastic there's a few lobsters we know going up there so we're looking forward to lots of fun in terms of the podcast as well as episode 100 we've got more reviews coming up Sean uh, then we're going to do an aircon episode 
then we're going to be reviewing 2017 at last. We're going to leave it till after Aircon to try and get some more of those because there are so many big releases towards the end of the year. A few more of those in before we, we do a full review of 2017 and give our favourites. Okay, so as Rana mentioned in the middle of the show, we've got our giveaway where we're going to give away a copy of Coup, the Brazilian Coup. As Rana mentioned, it's uh, probably the best artwork of all of them. If you want to win that, go to YouTube or to Board Game Geek and give a thumbs up to our video of Civilization A New Dawn. And in the comments, just put, I am Pit Crew. It was Ronan's idea. As you're typing it and feel a little bit foolish, it's all Ronan's fault. Or, so. or be proud that you, you are Pit Crew. <laughs> You've earned that. And the very last thing is, we did introduce it with Chris's thoughts. We are going to be putting up uh, the list of games we're going to review the next time we do a Pick Over the Bones. And we're going to be looking for your opinions on those games. So head to our guild, the Game Pick Guild on Board Game Geek, or Guild 1588. Also, very shortly, we're going to be looking for your opinions on the best and most disappointing games of 2017. Because when we do our review show, we're going to include your opinions on this. If you want to hear your opinions read out on the show, please get over to the guild and share your thoughts. And uh, and we'll agree with you or not, it'll all be good. And please be better than Chris Marling. That was a terrible well, start to that section. Worse, terrible, I know. <laughs> Okay, and as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go to there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to email us for episode 100 or whatever, it's thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Board Game Geek Guild. It's 1588 on the guild list. And please pop along there if you want to have a chat. And to, of course, give us some comments for the upcoming episodes we're on social media. We have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter page. And Natalie is busy working away on our Instagram feed, which had kind of started to fade away. We weren't very good at keeping that up, but she's doing great things over there. So go and look at the photos that are provided there. If you wish to download the episodes, we're on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbean. And of course, we have our YouTube channel. Pop along there for our pit stop videos, which are a very quick overview on games, just to see if you fancy buying them or playing them. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Music. Boy, 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 boy,